0: Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, your source for breaking news, business trends, and economic forecasts here and abroad that impact one-third of America's economy. And now your hosts, Lou Weiss and Tim Grady. And we appreciate all of you who have tuned in to Manufacturing Talk Radio to listen to this episode. We're going to be talking with Tom Finan, who is the cyber growth leader for Willis. Powers Watson's Cyber Errors and Emissions Practice, and he is going to be speaking with us about the risks that, in our particular show, manufacturers face in the world of cyber threats, and they're certainly real, and they're certainly out there. Lou, you and I have heard a lot about them on several of our shows, and we're excited to have Tom join us
1: well yeah it's uh, it's something I think that the manufacturing sector here has to pay more attention to because uh there are bad guys out there and uh <coughs> that's, that's number one sorry that's number one number two is uh there's uh better ways to be running your business today, and uh you need to know about it, and that's part of our job. Because we know that manufacturers are busy making things, and we're busy telling people about how to run your business better than you are now. So that being said,
0: Tom, give us an idea, and welcome to the show, by the way. Of not Will, just what you do with uh, with Will Sowers Watson, but I'd like for the audience to hear your background because it's. You no, know, it's not like okay. This is a guy who works at uh, Willis Towers Watson. That's a big insurance firm. Um, you have got quite a background in this area. Please share that with our with our listeners.
2: Uh, well, thanks, gentlemen, for having me today. Um, I, I am a cyber growth leader at Willis Towers Watson. We have about forty-five thousand employees worldwide, um, but our our cyber focus. I would say worldwide is just about 150 people uh, where we are broking cybersecurity insurance on behalf of our clients and manufacturing and beyond. Uh, but we also have a big focus on helping uh, companies get their houses in order when it comes to cybersecurity, even before you get to cyber insurance. So a big focus on risk prevention and risk mitigation, helping uh, companies determine where do we really allocate our limited resource dollars in ways that make us safer, and once we've sort of managed and and prevented what we can, where does a a purchase of cybersecurity insurance make sense? I've been with the company now for about three years, and I previously was a cybersecurity strategist and counsel for the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Um, At DHS, we had a big mission on protecting the nation's critical infrastructure, and I really focused a lot during my service there on cyber insurance, because the, the thought that we had was, you know, the insurance market has done a good job in other perils areas like fire. It knows what, what kinds of fire safety controls need to be in place to help prevent or mitigate a fire. And our thought back at DHS was, well, to what extent does the insurance market know what controls would be most helpful when it comes to cyber risk? and we had a conversation that actually went on for a couple of years, I think the market today in 2020 is much further along in terms of understanding what good cybersecurity practice looks like, and you're starting to see that being reflected in the kinds of coverage that's available and who's able to get it on the most favorable terms.
1: Now, I was going to ask if uh, uh, the, uh, Thomas was uh, aware of the uh, NIST 80171. Uh, compliance uh, for cybersecurity in relation to certain government purchases?
2: I am. um, I'm I'm personally a huge fan of 800-171 and really all standards. Um, I think 800-171, also ISA 62443 family of standards and others, that are all really reflected in the NIST cybersecurity framework are a fantastic resource for organizations. And from an insurance perspective, they're really important. Um, Standards really represent the best thinking of uh, women and men in their respective fields of expertise where they've come together, they've built a consensus uh, understanding of what best practice looks like. What are the things you need to do from a people, process, and technology perspective to protect your organization? Uh, as best you can, uh, because cyber insurance is is relatively new to most people, it's been around for ten plus years in some form or fashion. But because the risk evolves so quickly, I, I think both brokers and underwriters are very interested to know how organizations are applying these standards, because they use them as a benchmark. You know, if you're using them, that puts you in a category of probably a safer risk if you're able to tell your story about how how you're using them and how they're having a measurable impact even better
1: uh, I'd like to just make a comment or two to our audience about what NIST 800 is and basically it's a program that uh, uh, the US government implemented five years ago installed a year a year a year and now I believe that this is the year, December 31st, that it's really going into effect, that if you want to be doing business with the government in regards to the Department of Defense, and I think the Department of Energy, uh, I might be wrong there, Uh, there may be others. Uh, Thomas, do you know if there are any others? I'm not entirely sure. I do know it's broadly
2: applicable to DOD for
1: sure right right so the bottom line is that this year this is the real year we've got a lot of real stuff happening this year that if you are doing business with the government department of defense and maybe the doe you might want to look into NIST, n-i-s-t 800-171 our good friends over at google have a lot of information on that Uh, Because after December 31st, supposedly, you're not going to be doing business with the government. So that being said, I put out my
0: warning, and back to Tim. (laughs) I think Uh, you wanted um, to say something. (laughs) Yes, Tom, uh, there's, you know, this whole insurance and cyber risk area I want to unpack a little bit. Let's start with the risk. I know that manufacturers are looking at it. Um, probably more seriously now than ever before, but is it a case where the manufacturer is looking at it not because the hacker is trying to uh, maliciously send their uh, assembly lines into a frenzy, but in fact they're trying to steal
2: intellectual property? That's absolutely true. Um, And, you know, I think uh, manufacturing uh, companies are starting to recognize that a lot of the confidential business information that they have is extremely attractive to people um, and it's not a, a, a realization that, that was occurring unnecessarily i mean obviously um, across corporate america there's sensitive trade secret information uh, that is something that you know immediately pops to mind when you think of intellectual property but really what we're seeing is uh, there's a myriad of threat actors certainly nation states but cyber criminals and even hacktivists that are very interested in understanding how are manufacturers doing what they do? You know, What are their novel processes? Uh, what are the um, efficiencies that they're learning through the experience of their factory floors that they're adopting? Um, it's sort of business intelligence because ultimately as the world becomes more interconnected and more competitive, uh, there are you know countries and companies, unfortunately, that don't wanna to go to the trouble of creating their own intellectual property and figuring out these issues on their own, they'd much rather steal them um, and, and save the tremendous time and, and uh, expense that's involved in developing that expertise. And so just as you see in any other cyber criminal activity, which typically, you know, at least historically, has been targeted toward the theft of, of money uh, or data that then can be sold for money, um, there is an increasing interest Uh, on what are the blueprints, the plans, the schematics, the business strategies that manufacturers have in their enterprise network systems that we can get a hold of uh, and avail ourselves of. It's really uh, not unlike traditional industrial uh, espionage. Um, And now because manufacturing is such a huge part of the economic base and because we have this increasing reshoring manufacturing, of companies coming back to the U.S. and other advanced economies, you're starting to see a lot of uh, of interest and uptick in these intellectual property thefts and attempted theft, uh, and it's something that we're certainly seeing in some of the loss reports from our own cyber claims data. Tom, and I'm
0: assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong, that part of that intellectual property that manufacturers may not be considering is something as common as their customer list. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if I could steal your customer list and then my competitor company in my nation state doesn't really have to figure out how to which customers
2: to go after. they got a hot list. Absolutely. Um, customer lists are probably one of the most sought-after uh, areas of data because think about it. If you know, if, you, if there's a company out there, whether it's a large manufacturer or a midsize or even small, that's taken the time to develop uh, a certain product or offering, and they've invested in it, uh, they've created uh, a following, and they have dedicated customers that you know, over years and years are, are coming back and are ensuring a, a, a stable flow of revenue. If you are a nation state or a competitor company, and you want to essentially leapfrog that entire process and get to those people and, and undercut, uh, what the business that you've built, um, it's very tempting. You want to know who are the people that are currently buying because they're the most likely ones that will buy from me if they can get a better deal or if we can somehow represent that what we are producing is as good if not better. And so that is is information that is collected. Maybe it's not necessarily stored all in the same place, but believe you me, adversaries would like to see the billing records of your organization. You know who's buying, uh, who's a repeat customer, for how long have they been your customer, uh, what are they buying, and to the extent that they can glean from information in corporate systems, what are they expressing interest in as a future product or offering that they would like uh, to get their hands on and, and 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 use as as a consumer. That is basically a pot of gold for any cyber criminal who can access that information and then sell it to the highest bidder.
1: That's an interesting point, point. and uh, to continue that, I, I'd like to ask you, as the in- insurance company who protects uh, financially against cyber attack, um, do you actually uh, inspect your clients' uh, processes and uh, uh, their, their computer hookups and so on? to verify
2: that they are cyber-safe? Yes, and, and there are a couple of ways that that is done. And I think it's important for your listeners to understand what, what a broker does versus what an underwriter does. You know, As a broker, my job is to work very closely with manufacturing companies to understand essentially what keeps them up at night. You know, what are their mission-critical functions? What, meaning, what are the things that need to be happening on a day-to-day basis uh, to ensure that the business remains a going concern, and which of those mission critical functions depend on IT and OT systems. And what I do is I have a conversation along those lines, certainly with the chief security officer, a chief information security officer, but I also like to engage uh, the CFO, the general counsel, even HR, uh, and the chief risk officer, obviously, because each of those individuals has a perspective on what is mission critical. So typically what will happen is once I have that sort of holistic view of what is the nature of the business, what are the critical dependencies, then we can have a conversation that goes right to those security controls. Given what your priorities are, or I should step back, what are your priorities given those mission critical functions that, that have to be happening, and how are you investing – against the risk in ways that if they don't prevent a successful attack, then at least are mitigating the impacts. And so that can that can occur a couple of ways. Uh, typically, we get an application uh, from the underwriters. Will Stowers Watson happens to have its own proprietary form that we believe you know, captures sort of the best of what's out there. And we'll run through those questions with the client or prospect to really get a, a broad understanding of where are their strengths where are their weaknesses when it comes to their cybersecurity programs? It's then my job to really help the client develop a narrative, help them tell their story to the market about where they know that they have strength and weakness, what they're doing in terms of a strategy to address those weaknesses, and how they're going to measure progress over time. So it's very often an application first. There are many tools available to both our clients and to brokers where we can sort of uh, do an audit of, of the cybersecurity program. Uh, many companies on their own will hire an outside vendor where they'll have a top-to-bottom uh, technical cybersecurity review. Sometimes it's broader than that. It will look to what are the policies and processes in place. And I think very importantly, a focus on the human element. How are you engaging people on the shop floor, people in the C-suite, to ensure that they are not a vulnerability when it comes to uh, the potential of a cyber attack against the organization. Underwriters go through a similar process. Um, There are some some different questions that I think most manufacturers could expect from underwriters given that the underwriting uh, organizations are actually on the hook. They're the ones who pay the losses when a bad cyber day happens. So there will be some overlap with the questions that a broker and underwriter are asking. Uh, but there are some deeper questions that I think underwriters will ask based upon the lost experiences that they're seeing their clients have. I know in the property insurance market, it's not uncommon for uh, underwriters to send engineers into the physical plant and take a look at how uh, security protocols are enabled across that the makes organization. Sense. And And truthfully, that makes- it's something that is... It, 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 it's a good. It's a good practice. It's something that I'm increasingly seeing now with cybersecurity coverage, when it comes to operational technology, where they want to take that deeper look and really have that assurance that what's on paper and what's reported in an application is actually put into practice in the real world.
1: Well, you gave us really an incredibly precise answer and response. Uh, which only generated a couple of additional questions that I have. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, uh, presuming that uh, cyber crime is increasing, and if it is, uh, what kind of rate are we? Is it growing at?
2: Do, do you have that uh, number at the top of your head? I wish I had a good news story for you here, but cyber crime. I, and I'm, I'm not trying to sound alarmist is increasing exponentially uh, year after year. You know, I, I I like to quote the early 20th century gunslinger, Willie Sutton. Um, he was purportedly <laughs> asked by a reporter in the early uh, 20th century, you know, why do you rob banks? And Willie Sutton apparently said, well, that's where the money is. Uh, the okay. same thing is happening with cybercrime, right? You know, it, it, it's where the money is. That's where the data is. And cyber criminals have found an extraordinarily lucrative source of income, shall we say, but unlike Mm -hmm. Willie Sutton, they don't have to fear for their lives. You know, they're not going to be shot. They're doing all of this electronically very often from the safety of their homes. So I would say that it is absolutely on the increase. I haven't seen the latest numbers, but it is increasing year over year across all 16 critical infrastructure sectors. Um, You're starting to see um, new sectors being attacked increasingly, of which manufacturing is one. Um, And, you know, they are getting uh, very, very creative. I also say that cyber criminals are like water. They're relentless. Once they understand that there is money to be had or data that can be monetized, they will find a way in. They will look for the weakest link. Uh, It could be a technical issue. More often than not, it's a, a... it's a person issue—the employee that gets tricked through a social engineering scam. But they will get in, and when they get in, they're not like Willie Sutton robbing the whole bank. Um, they are very, very regular cases. Very interested in remaining sort of quiet and hidden, and they're siphoning off funds and data slowly. Their 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 hope is the longer they can be in a network, the longer they can explore, uh, and the longer they can remain unnoticed, the better because that way they're going to maximize what they ultimately are stealing. It's sort of like the frog in the boiling pot doesn't realize it's boiling until it's too late. Uh, I think cyber criminals are are taking a very same strategy and approach.
1: Well, uh, it's funny. I just had a credit card issue uh, last week, and uh, there were three fraudulent uh, activities on my credit card. Uh, you know, one was eighty nine dollars, one was thirty nine dollars. You know, a little bit at a time, so it doesn't raise uh, the antennae of these credit card companies and the banks. Meanwhile, thank goodness, Bank of America. I'm going to give you a plug. Generally, I hate you, but uh, I'm going to give you a plug now. And uh, they caught they caught the uh, the deals and confronted me with it, and I said, I don't know anything about it and uh it's it's really quite incredible because uh, you would probably know better than uh, uh than any of us what is the cyber crime
2: dollar amount on credit cards per year per year you know i i don't have that exact figure i but what i can tell you is you know i and i i, I have to admit we were we went through the same thing that you just described um uh, involving a large uh, online retail uh, entity where we started getting deliveries to our home of uh, cords for our cell phones that we weren't ordering. And what we figured out is that a cyber criminal somewhere had stolen uh, my wife's credit card number. And what was scary for us personally is that they were ordering things that were being delivered to our home. And what we found out was that they were hoping to, shall we say, intercept, literally go to our mailbox to get these things before we got to the mail. Really? So, it, you know, it's not just a remote crime that's happening over the Internet. When it, Depending upon the level of sophistication of the cyber actor, you know, they were that brazen, um, assuming that, you know, they could maybe drive by, follow the post post office worker as they were driving up to our home. And maybe intercept something before we had an opportunity. So, if you need an extra cord for your iPhone, you know, give me a shout because I've got about seven of them <laughs> sitting in my kitchen. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Tom, one of the one of the things we hear about frequently, and it's happened to cities, counties, companies, corporations, is ransomware. Is there an insurance policy that covers? the ransom you're going to have to pay to save your system.
2: There is. And, and I will tell you, and we could speak for the next four hours about ransomware. (laughs) Ransomware is the fastest growing cyber criminal activity out there. And it's getting, it's getting worse. And there's been an evolution. And the good news though, is cyber insurance does address it. And I can tell you about the phenomenon that's going on there. Um, you know originally a couple of years ago, when you started first hearing about ransomware, there would be you know typically a demand by a cyber criminal they would they would get into a company's network, they would access critical data, they would encrypt it, and then they would say to the company, "You need to pay us five hundred thousand um, dollars within the next forty eight hours, or we're going to destroy your data." And, you know, okay. there were companies that were paying. This became a huge loss area. And and the cyber insurance market responded. It, believe it or not, it started originally in kidnap and and uh, ransom uh, s- sort of coverage. It wasn't necessarily intended for an electronic cyber crime like ransomware, but it was originally paying for the ransom. And what's happened now is that coverage has largely moved over to cybersecurity insurance policies, uh, and they cover the ransom demand, but they cover a lot more. They'll also pay for the forensics that are involved. Once you've had an attack, you need to figure out what happened, how did they get in, how do we fix this, and where else have they been in the network. Uh, hopefully they're out, but if they're not, you want to find them and kick them out. Uh, and then there are other expenses too where you're notifying people. Uh, you are maybe hiring an attorney that's going to help you navigate through the breach response period. And these, these are expenses that can add up pretty quickly, but they're also expenses that cyber insurance pays for. Now, I will tell you, when I started at Willis Towers Watson three years ago, you know, the, the average ransomware demand was maybe five or six figures, you know, it was not uncommon for to see a five-figure demand and then the six-figure demand. It sort of crossed the $1 million threshold maybe a year and a half ago I was speaking to some colleagues the other day that I think there's now a pending ransomware demand, and I don't know what company is involved or where, but I'm told, and and, and this is just you know people in the industry talking, that it's about a sixty five million dollar ransom demand. Now, cyber insurance will pay for the expenses around there, including the demand, but to protect themselves underwriters are very interested in negotiating that number down. And so there's actually been a bit of a cottage industry that has, has stood up where there are men and women who are experts in criminal psychology. They are getting on the phone with these cyber criminals and they're entering negotiations. And I have to tell you, these cyber criminals are the friendliest people you could ever meet. They've set up, (laughs) uh, they've, they've set this up as a business. They have a call center. You call in, say, yes, I, I work for XYZ Corporation. I understand you've encrypted my systems. You're, you're asking for you know, $10 million in Bitcoin, and they work through you. I mean, you can work through a payment plan. I mean, I'm, I'm not even exaggerating. And what's happening is um, these negotiators are working with the cyber criminals to hopefully reduce the amount of the demand. Um, it is having an impact across the insurance industry, uh, what we are seeing is premiums are increasing. They're not—they're not cutting off the coverage. They're not uh, walking away from their obligations in any—in in any way, shape, or form. But we are seeing an increase anywhere from, I would say, 10 to 20 percent in premium to cover these losses, which are becoming pretty pretty common. Um, as as far as manufacturers are concerned, I do think that many. Believed that they were immune from this because, as we were discussing earlier, you know, why come after me for my data? Well, we had that conversation. But unfortunately, <laughs> cyber criminals are very smart as well as, as, as well as being nice. They have learned enough about operational technology, SCADA systems, and other ICS, and they have learned how they can manipulate uh, in a very physical and painful way in some cases industrial control systems. And so there have been in, uh, cases where they've not only shut down uh, a, a manufacturing facility, but they've merely threatened to do so, and they've made a ransom demand. And as a result of that, um, there, there have been payments to basically prevent interference with operations in the physical, real world. Um, and it's, it's you know, a, a particular challenge, I think, for manufacturers, given that their cybersecurity postures... Or perhaps not as strong as you might see in other industry sectors.
1: Uh, I'm kind of curious. Um, I, I gather that these uh, policies run well into the millions or tens of millions of dollars, uh, the larger the company, of course. Is there
2: a deductible
1: that you charge <laughs> to these
2: <desire? laughs> There, there, there. As in any line of coverage, there are cybersecurity insurance deductibles, and you know, depending upon your sector or the size of your organization, both of, of those factors will typically dictate what those deductibles are. It's ultimately up to the individual client, because obviously, the higher the deductible you're paying, the less your premium will be. Um, so, right. I don't think it's uncommon. You know, depending on you know, for example, say a company were to go out. And buy a ten million dollar or maybe a twenty-five million dollar uh, insurance policy, cyber insurance policy. You know, there might be a du- be a deductible for anywhere from twenty-five to seventy-five thousand dollars. You know, it could be higher, depending upon you know the financial calculation that mm-hmm. the individual client is making. Some change.
0: Yes, Tom. Um, uh, is there? Somebody um, in the insurance industry who's going to come up with a deductible
2: insurance policy?
0: To recover um, the me- deductible? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> deductibles are not insurable in most cases. But, um, you know, again, it's something that can be negotiated. And, and you know, the point that I would make about mm-hmm. cybersecurity insurance, because it is, you know, new to many different you know, industry uh, segments, you know, many companies will approach us and they'll say, look, you know, I'm not sure that I even want to buy a policy. You know, I, I haven't gotten my own house in order. From my Department of Homeland Security days, and I've been a long proponent of this, it's totally okay if you don't want to buy the cybersecurity insurance policy yet. I think that going through the cybersecurity insurance process still has huge risk management value for you. And I'll tell you what I what I mean and and I'm starting to see this increasingly as well. As a broker, we know a whole bunch of questions we're going to ask an individual client about their cyber risk posture. When we ask those questions, we typically have a planning meeting where we ask the company to pull together some of the key decision makers that, that again have that perspective on what's mission critical. And through the process of discussion, it's really in many cases the first time that a company has been able to have a cybersecurity prioritization discussion with key decision makers. And so there's a benefit in getting all of these key leaders on the same page, talking about what's mission critical, understanding where they're strong and where there are gaps, and they get a better understanding of well, where do I need to make a controls investment even before I buy a policy? So I can be sure that I'm doing all I can or should that I'm doing all that I should be doing before I even get into a risk transfer through insurance discussion. And you know, I've had clients do that and then we bring them to the underwriters, and as I said earlier, there's a huge benefit in talking to the underwriters. Yes, they're gonna ask similar questions, but they're also going to ask very pointed questions that, believe you me, are directly informed by the loss they just had yesterday. And what I say to clients is, look, go through at least the underwriting process because you're going to get the benefit of perspectives from not only brokers but underwriters who are going to know what is happening to companies like yours. And that's, it's almost like getting a free cyber risk assessment because you're understanding what losses are happening that's going to help you go back internally and justify a particular investment in a, a set of controls or a new process or maybe hiring new cybersecurity team members whatever the case may be and then of course if you buy the policy well then this virtuous cycle of cybersecurity improvement can happen where you know typically there's a renewal every year and yes there's typically a deductible involved but you know you're spending the whole year focusing on okay how do we put our company in the best position possible. So at renewal, we're getting the best coverage possible, maybe with some enhancements that the carriers are offering this year. And we're doing it in a way that minimizes any increase to premium. And it keeps all those key people that I talked about at the beginning focused on, hey, what are we doing with cyber risk management? Are we funding it appropriately? Are we prioritizing appropriately? So you know, I think, yes, there's risk transfer value from insurance. You have a bad day the policy's gonna pay, but in the process of that, you're also constantly upping your game when it comes to improving the cybersecurity activities you as an organization are involved in.
1: I I recall, Thomas, when I wound up going to uh, uh, get my primary business, All Metals and Forge Group, uh, registered and certified under ISO 9000, which was in 1993, four, 94, uh, and we went through some, I think, some similar things that you're talking about, where we we had to make changes, and of course we also got uh, employee pushback, uh, and and it, but it didn't take long for the, uh, the benefit of participating in ISO, and now we're doing it, you know, 27 years, something like that, uh, there's been a huge benefit because it saved our, our systems, our processes, and so on, which is what you're talking about. You're going to do an assessment, an insurance assessment on a particular client, and you're going to point out to them what they pointed out to us that we need to fix in order to be, quote-unquote, compliant or be risk-free. So uh, it's very similar uh, as to what I went through 25 years ago.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, in many ways, the cybersecurity insurance industry learns from past practice and and what has worked in the past with standards. And I, I love coming back to the standards discussion. Standards are not static. You know, they're evolving To address new risk areas and what is a best-in-class practice? What should you be doing? And that is nowhere more true than when it comes to cybersecurity, because ultimately, the standards are informed by the real day-to-day experience of practitioners outside in the field. And the insurance industry, brokers and underwriters both, they're not experts in all things OT or IT. They're not Necessarily, there are some exceptions, but they're not necessarily deeply, you know, entrenched in the technical aspects of of building, uh, you know, network architecture. This is a risk management business, and so their natural default is, well, let's go to the experts. Let's go see what is, you know, the 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 baseline good business practice that we should be asking about and expecting and measuring. Uh, to inform a decision about whether or not to write a policy. And you're starting to see that happen. It's been interesting watching the practice of taking an outside engineering firm and then bringing them into the cybersecurity context, and it's because of that IT-OT convergence. Uh, But there are other factors, too, where you're starting to see, you know, a big focus on the human element and, and what is the role that people are playing. That's something where I think, you know, underwriters and brokers both have been traditionally very strong. They understand that people are people and they make mistakes and, you know, negligence can lead to, you know, a lost situation. So I think manufacturers should expect a lot of questions about, you know, what sort of cybersecurity training are you bringing? You know, most companies are doing cybersecurity training. I think the the more helpful question and area of inquiry is, are you making the training you are doing relevant to the jobs of individuals? Is it actually changing their behaviors? Is it helping them understand that what they do could be extraordinarily beneficial to the security of the organization or cataclysmic based upon a level of carelessness, for example, and, and really sort of engaging employees in a way that makes them understand that it's their job, too, to be a cybersecurity contributor, even if their title is, you know, CEO or summer intern. It really doesn't matter. We re- it really is a, a whole of workforce obligation. And I, you're starting to see signs of that happening, which I think is a healthy development.
1: In order to bring that up, we'd have to bring in the HR consultants to, yes. <laughs>
2: to deal with that
1: yeah.
0: part of yes. It's true. Kyle, yeah. <laughs> I, I wonder have, if I you to... would... Go ahead, Doug. Go ahead.
2: I was just going to say the HR folks—they are the last people to the party, but they're the people that I so want to come. And I'll tell you why. When I speak publicly about cybersecurity, I very often like to go to uh, human resource type events where there are lots of HR leaders. And a line that I typically use in my opening remarks is, "You know, you as HR leaders are cybersecurity superheroes too." sometimes they run from the room so quickly they leave burn marks on the carpeting. Um, the, the reason being that they, the last thing they want to do is take on a new responsibility. And, and you know, it's hard for them um, to and, and, and to their credit, look, they are extraordinarily busy with a whole bunch of things that are necessary to the day-to-day well-being of employees. What, what my argument is, is look, I'm not asking you, Mr. or Ms. HR leader, to become captain cybersecurity. That's, that's a bridge too far. But, but many of the things that you do through training and awareness, through rewards and incentives, through your workforce development strategy, making sure you're recruiting the right people with the right skills, this is essentially cybersecurity work, and you don't even know it. And so what, what needs to happen is you as an HR leader should really take some of your own advice. If you don't know somebody that you need to know, take them to lunch. That person in many cases, especially in manufacturing, is going to be the chief security officer, the chief information security officer, or whoever is responsible for the IT and OT function within their organizations. Find out what they need. Find out what their challenges are. Find out what motivates their people to not only do good work, but ultimately stay with the organization. That union of effort between the cybersecurity leads and the HR leads is where the future is going to be, not only in manufacturing, but I think really across every industry segment.
0: Sam, why don't you wrap this up for our listeners with your website address and how to get in contact with you if they have any questions. Where do they go? Where do they type in?
2: You bet. No, and I appreciate that. And if anyone has questions about cyber insurance or, or cyber risk management, uh, best practice in the manufacturing space, I'd be delighted to engage. Um, the best way to reach me, um, my personal cell is 571-639-1010, or you can email me at thomas.finan at com. Um, and you can also find me on my corporate website, which is basically www.willistowerswatson.com. Just look up um, cyber insurance and, and Tom Fine, and, and it'll it'll take you to me. Um, and I would just say that, you know, f- from my perspective, you know, we have in the manufacturing sector this huge reshoring phenomenon going on where more and more manufacturing companies are coming back to the U.S. or, or nearshoring. Uh, to near uh, advanced economies, given the supply chain issues. Cyber criminals are noticing and they're thinking about ways to you know target the sector given the prominence that they play in the economy. And insurance is there. There are many different kinds of coverage that could be included within a cybersecurity insurance contract. Um, and given some of the unique vulnerabilities that manufacturers have, I would just encourage your listeners to talk to a broker who's really going to get to know their business. And who really understands the range of different coverages that may be tailored and appropriate given their particular operations. So I absolutely appreciate the opportunity to have been on the show today, and I look forward to engaging with you both again.
1: Uh, We would certainly welcome that. And I want to just leave you with one thought. And I've been doing it actually a lot lately within my businesses. Uh, regarding what's going on in the trials and tribulations that we're all having what's going on in this country today, everything from, you know, this to that. Get serious. We have to get serious about fixing things. So if you have an issue, if you're a company of a certain size, you want to protect your uh, data and information, um, you just heard how to do it. So that being said, Tim and uh, Thomas, uh, thank you for being on the show. We appreciate it, and uh, we'd like to hear
0: from you. Thank you. And we've been speaking with Thomas Finan, who is the cyber growth leader with Willis Towers Watson's Finex Cyber and Practice. You know his and emissions. And if you want to reach Tom, his last name is spelled F-I-N-A-N. So, Thomas. Finan at WillistowersWatson.com. If you want to reach him directly through his email address, and while you're surfing the web, go to JacketMediaco.com, where you can find a link to Manufacturing Talk Radio, and you can run through that website and look for this particular show. We also have an upcoming article from Tom, uh, again, on this subject in great depth. We encourage you to listen to the WAM podcast, which is Women in Manufacturing, Full Time with Amy, which talks about that work-life balance, Hazard Girls of Women in Unusual Roles in Industry, Where's Willie, William Miller traveling the country talking to us from the production floor, and Manufacturing Matters with Cliff Waldman. And as always, thank you for listening to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio.
1: Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.